Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Base Path Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan. We're now two weeks into the college baseball season. The high school and prep seasons will be here before we know it. It's officially baseball season in New England. Our guest today is one of the most influential people on the New England baseball scene over the last 30 years. Steve August is a former Red Sox assistant general manager, and he is also the founder of the New England Roughnecks Travel Ball Program, as well as the inspiration for the idea to build the New England baseball complex in Northborough, Massachusetts. Steve, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because you have one of the longest standing travel ball programs in New England. So you've seen the way that it's evolved. You obviously um, have seen the problems that have kind of come up over the years from everybody kind of chasing the the D1 scholarship dream. Obviously, only 11.7 scholarships per program. Now we have 40-man rosters. Everybody's posting their velocity, everything else online. If you were to kind of summarize, hey, these are the two or three biggest problems with the way that the travel ball has evolved over the last few years. How would you summarize that? Well, I see the number number one problem is it's turned into an industry and a money grab. I think there are a number of red flags out there for the consumer, parent, kid. It's terribly watered down. And it's veered away from teaching baseball to becoming more of an industry. Yeah, that, so we've had a couple of travel ballers, I would say, on. And the thing that's so hard to get to the root of is why it's so expensive. A lot of these programs, six, $7,000 a year, and then you add on travel expenses, hotels, and all those th- types of things. I know we did the story on the Roughnecks uh, last year, just kind of a travel ball spotlight. And you said, number one, you're not taking money from, your, you personally are not taking money from the, the dues that the kids are paying. And number two, you're investing in your coaching staff with that money. You have Kirk Fredericks. You had Kevin Graber for a number of years there, the Phillips Andover. Ace Ace Adams. Yeah, Ace Adams, obviously. Really renowned coaches in the area. Where does the money go to for these other organizations that aren't investing in their staff that way? I don't know. You'd have to ask those organizations. (laughs) Right. But I I be wide or culture-wide. To answer your question, I think... If a, if a family's looking for a place to develop their kid for baseball, you have to ask, what are they spending the money on? And if they're f- putting it into coaching, basically it's like a school, right? Mm-hmm. What, what, are the, what are the most important pieces of a school? Your, your student body, your faculty, and your physical plant or the resources. Right. This is no different. So we, for instance, we have five teams. We don't do the B team thing. And our coaching budget this year is $130,000. So you can, you can do the math. And nobody, nobody's a full-time guy. you got to pay the coaches. Yeah. And I actually, so there's a number of different or things that separate the Roughnecks from other travel ball programs. The coaching staff, the investment in the coaches is obviously one of them. But you were, were just kind of breaking down. So it's 13U to 17U, one team for each. And you see a lot of these programs that have 300 to 500 kids in the program, many teams at different age levels. So is it a selective process or how do you decide, hey, this is our team of 15 to 20 players for this age group? Well, I mean, I, I don't really, I'd rather talk about the industry in general than the Roughnecks. I okay. mean, is it a selective process? For us, yes, it's a selective process. And I'd rather have the hard conversation 
and say there's no more seats in the classroom, so to speak. Mm -hmm. For others, you'd have to ask how selective you're really being. Are you being selective for your top team and then funding it with all these other guys? Because that's not selective. Mm Yeah, no, that makes sense. One of the the issues that I think besides the cost um, with these travel ball programs is the kind of the lack of patience to showcase these kids. And I saw a video a few weeks ago, Ace Adams was talking to guys in the Roughnecks program about pitching or throwing in December, January. And it seems like there is a big hurry for, it's almost a dead time of year. So if you can put up a video of yourself, a clock in a 90 mile an hour fastball, it's not like there's a hundred other guys doing that that day. So it's almost, there's a rush in the off season to get up to your max velocity, to showcase that, to post it on social media. When, when did that start happening? And do you think that's a major problem with the travel baseball? I'll, I'll answer the second question. Yes, I think it's a major problem. And it's just common sense. As far as when it started, I think you probably could you could probably pinpoint the explosion of social media as a vehicle to capture attention for yourself. Mm-hmm. The problem runs deeper, though, and it's funny. I mean, we just had this conversation a week ago. I ha- I, I was speaking with Jimmy Brett's area scout for the Detroit Tigers on the phone. We were we were talking about this, and the frenzy and the anxiety that people face in getting their name out not only do they risk injury you know they're risking burnout there's no reason on earth no good baseball guy including some of the most marvelous college coaches who are actually going to react to that video would advocate a kid should throw max effort in december or january no one so why do they buy it? So we're all part of the problem, right? You see, you see what's happening? So the college coaches are saying, send me a video. Do they want to see a video at 82, 84? What they should be looking at is a video, how, how smooth, the, how easily the ball comes out of the kid's hand. Is he looking athletic? And, and maybe some of these guys are looking at that. Mm-hmm. But we know what's going to capture attention, right? Yeah. The kid holding a radar gun that says 89, oh, I hit 90, right? Now I tweet this out and I'm going to get some interest. Right. Yeah, and the colleges will show the interest too. It's not like they're... And so I do want to talk to you about the recruiting landscape because you offer that type of service to your players where you're, you're telling them these are the schools that are recruiting players from our area. These are the academic standards that you have to meet. This is what they're looking for in terms of positions that are maybe they have a freshman at your position. So you might want to look somewhere else. What are the realities of recruiting or what are the biggest things that parents don't understand? Because I think with 11.7 scholarships spreading out, everybody's looking for the return on the investment, which isn't always there. And D1 is such a small percentage of the college baseball opportunities in this area. So, yes, I was just sharing with one of your colleagues our research and our college recruiting seminar and presentation we provide to the kids and the parents. So in, in 2019, which was the last year before COVID, and th- those are the numbers I'm still working with, a little over half a million kids in the United States were playing high school baseball. Mm-hmm. 55 to 57,000 were playing college baseball. Chances of playing college baseball were about 11%. Mm-hmm. So basically a little over one out of 10 kids who played high school baseball would play any kind of college baseball. The percent of those playing Division One baseball 
was 2%. Now, I'm sure that those numbers are steady today. The other thing that parents don't realize and kids don't realize, if you, you know, we always quiz kids and parents on this when we have our little college meetings. Do you know how many scholarships there are in baseball? 11.7, you pointed out. How many players are on the roster? A full roster at Division One is like 35 players. Right. So how does that work? I have yet to hear of the 100% scholarship. I, I know no one, no, no coach has ever told me that this guy is on a full ride in baseball. It's got to be carved up, right? Mm -hmm. And it is. And the other thing people don't realize is baseball in the college level is not a revenue-producing sport. The two biggies are football and basketball. And this will stagger a lot of people, and I hope your listeners tune in on this one. Do you know how many full scholarships, room and board and tuition, are for a fully funded Division One football program? Michigan, let's say. Ohio State. Is it 90? 85. 85, yes. Yeah. Most parents are staggered when they hear that. That means every kid holding a blocking dummy is eating and going to school and being housed for free, whether they ever see a snap. Mm-hmm. Most people guess it a little cl more closely with college basketball. I think it's like 13 or 14. Yeah. But why? Because those, those programs fund women's lacrosse, field hockey, baseball, swimming, the things that are not revenue producing. Mm -hmm. So I think what people need to understand in baseball is go play, play to have fun and play to get better. And you have a decent chance of playing in college through a good travel program, no, no question about it. But, you know, if you're chasing the D1 scholarship thing, I think the return on investment is probably a little sketchy. And I think something's lost in the development, too, because you'll see a lot of times with travel programs, kids, I, I think they try to almost over-showcase. They'll, they'll go travel to a tournament in the summer. They'll do okay. Maybe they go down to Georgia or Long Island or something like that. They don't have the, the they don't drum up the interest they were hoping for. They don't get the offers that they were hoping for. They'll sign up for another tournament the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend and the next weekend. And they're trying to get that 90 mile an hour fastball in front of scouts. And, mm -hmm. and I don't think there's enough focus on, Hey, like you need to take a step back. You need to be lifting right now, get stronger, or you need to work on your fundamentals a little bit. Like, I think there's something lost in the athleticism and developmental model when you're showcasing all the time. Do, do you see that when you're, when you're on the road? Absolutely. How about asking a kid to be able to throw to a base? Right. Right. If the kid, the pitcher can throw 90 miles an hour, but he can't feel the comebacker and th throw, throw it to his second baseman to get the force, right? It right, goes into yeah. center field, right? Because it's not practice. In travel baseball now, and, and we're trying to address this, and I showed you a video before we started talking. We actually are, are looking at playing a little bit less and practicing a little bit more. I, I think the the current trend is is this stuff is overcoached and undertaught. Mm -hmm. you know, overcoached, what do I mean by that? We got a lot of coaches that really want to be managing in the major leagues, so they they're touching their nose, they're touching their ear, they're calling every pitch, they're overcoaching. The kids are robots. They're they're not playing for themselves. It's one of the things I really admired about Kevin Graber, KG, who's now with the Cubs and coached with us for eleven years. Even though he was a consummate instructor and it it looked at times complex. What he was doing was handing the kids the game. Mm -hmm. He was encouraging them to be instinctive. 
And I think that's what we want to do. What happens in the travel ball mindset now is it's hurry up and play. Somebody from the tournament is coming down to your dugout and saying, hey, you've got 15 minutes to get your pitcher ready. There's no infield, outfield. We didn't practice yesterday. We're probably not going to practice tomorrow, mm -hmm. right? And like you said, well, I didn't get it today, so I'm going to just go to another game or another showcase or another opportunity to play in a game. I may not even know the shortstop's name, but I'm going to pitch. Mm -hmm. I may not know the pitcher's name, but I'm going to play shortstop. Yeah, it's become almost an individual sport in travel baseball with some Sometimes you see organizations bringing in kids from all over the country to rep represent their team, a New England team down in Florida. They're just bringing in Florida kids. And then you'll see kids hit a home run, walk off, sit on the sit in the dugout, and that they're, that they're happy with their performance. doesn't matter what the score is. It does feel like it's starting to move towards more to more of an individual game. Right. And, and I think, look, we're seeing the effects of this, and this, this is from the top down at major league level. The game is being watched less. For instance, we, we, we put out a little question to the thir new 13s and 14s this past fall. It was during the World Series or during the playoffs, and we said, how, how many guys, or right after the World Series, how many guys here watched any of the World Series? A few hands went up. How many of you guys, and 30 kids, the 13s and the 14s, two teams, how many of you guys watched an entire World Series game start to finish? Zero. Zero. <laughs> oh, no. I mean, that's sad. Yeah. That, that, that's sad because they're not learning how to watch the game. They're not – no one's really watching baseball anymore. They're watching highlights. They're watching launch angle. They're watching the bomb, right? They're watching the, the crazy athletic play. And those guys are the best players in the world. There's no question about it. Is the game being played correctly? Again, going back to overcoached or in the major leagues, it's probably undercoached. It's certainly undertaught mm -hmm. at our level, at the travel ball level. So we, we, we've, through coaches like Fred, Fredericks, KG, and, and Kevin Casey, we try to take a few more days to practice. We rarely have a day off, but that doesn't mean we're playing tournament, 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 tournament. Yeah. I heard a discussion actually on the way in about the pitch clock at the major league level. And it seems like they make changes to try to bring in the more casual fans like, hey, let's speed the game up. Let's make it two hours or two and a half hours because three and a half is too long. And I wonder if like in order to please people who aren't going to watch baseball anyway, if they're taking away from the spirit of the game where there is no clock on the field. Right. What do you think of that? I'm with you. I, I, there was nothing wrong with the game mm -hmm. since the 1800s right. until the current regime started tinkering with it, right? All they have to do is enforce rules, like get in the batter's box <laughs> and don't let these guys step out and tell the pitcher to deliver the pitch. And also get the owners to take a 30-second cut every inning. Well, they, they've added commercials, right. so charge more for a minute and – and don't do a minute and a half of commercials between innings. I mean, that adds on to those, those major league games. I mean, but everything, again, I, this is a matter, this is a podcast of its own. All these changes designed to uh, shorten, uh, they made the bases larger to shorten the base paths. I mean, for a hundred and X number of years, the, the base paths have been 90 feet and they're still 90 feet, but now you're safe at four inches closer or something like that i don't know right looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on new england baseball new england baseball journal and baseballjournal.com are the premier resources 
for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, Division One, Two, and Three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to BaseballJournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. So you do things a little bit differently as a program when you're traveling. And you hear a lot of travel ball directors saying that parents have become such an issue. You see it at fields. You see videos of it online where there's a lot of arguing with umpires. And the parents get really, seem to be really invested and involved. Maybe, I don't know if it's the financial piece where they feel like, hey, I'm paying six, $7,000. Now I can say what I want to the umpire. Or if a pandemic, everybody came out from being locked up for a year and didn't know how to behave anymore with umpires. But you ha- have some kind of rules. I don't know if they're rules, but you you have some philosophies about how to keep parents kind of at ar- arm's length on these travel trips and showcase events. What What is your philosophy on that? Well, you stated it. It's just arm's length. And, and, and I, I must say, Dan, look, we have, we have really good parents. There's a buy-in here. And they've bought in. They bought in and they... Some of these are very qualified par- parents in the, in the fact that they may have played some college baseball at different levels and in a, in a few cases even pro. But they buy in. Those people are usually the easiest ones, right, because they know. Yeah. The, the, the key is give the experience to the players as much as possible. But that also includes responsibility and accountability and self-advocacy. Sure, we want to hear from the parents anytime there's an illness or a family situation that could knock a kid off his pins a little bit. We want to hear from them. But from, a, from 13, it's like we don't want to hear from you about any of the baseball matters. All right? If he wants to try shortstop rather than third base, let him ask for shortstop <laughs> rather right. than third base. And the other key is we teach them how to travel. Right? And we're, we're not really reinventing the wheel. But it takes a lot of work, and it goes back to the investment into the kids from tuition. We, we travel as a team. We house them together. They eat together. They travel together on ground transportation and air. They don't travel with their parents. Their parents don't take them to and from the, the fields when we're in Georgia or Tennessee or wherever we go. They're on our watch. They're on our curfews. There's an element of trust there, right? It takes a lot of work by our faculty, our coaches, And we usually ask each coach to have at least a team meeting a day in the hotel so there's not a lot of downtime. We can talk baseball. We can have a little bit of fun, get to know each other. But the the key is the experience belongs to the kids. We all, as parents, and I'm a grandparent now, we all live vicariously through our kids. And it hurts when they strike out and they make a terrible swing because you know he's better than that. But, you know, you got to let go. And it's easier said from where I'm coming from than when I was 40 or 50. But we have great parents who buy into it. I hear all the time from college coaches that the the complexion of New England baseball has improved dramatically over the last 20 years. 
And you would think like you could probably credit travel baseball for some of that kids or have opportunities to play outside baseball season. Now there's so many indoor facilities, but it's just a matter of, yes, the players are getting more looks, but is that good for the community as a whole, the New England baseball community as a whole, if they're not preparing, if they're not developing the way that they used to, or that you're not getting the complete athletes, what is your, and I, so your vision with the NABC was let's get one facility that can host these big tournaments in New England. It's kind of a one home site that you can have perfect game tournaments. You can do all these big events and then also give these kids opportunities to play in front of scouts and college coaches. How do you think the the complexion of New England baseball has evolved over the last 20 years? And it is, is it for the best? Well, first of all, New England baseball players have closed the gap. I don't, I don't think when we show up, and then there's a, there are a lot of good programs, there are several good programs, not just ours, that's for sure, that, that go down south, and I don't think anybody takes them lightly anymore, right? It's not like we're surprising the teams in Georgia or Florida. So why is that? Yes, I think turf fields, I think kids are actually able to play a little bit more. I think, though, one of the things that works for New England athletes is something I hope we don't lose, which is more of these kids play multiple sports and they're better athletes, the ones that do. Mm-hmm. Whether they play hockey, hockey players are pretty good baseball players. Just ask the Glavin brothers. Mm-hmm. But hockey, basketball, soccer, football, I mean, the, these are, we, we encourage this in our program. As far as the turf goes, look, you're kind of, did, did I have a vision? Yes, I mean, kind of a crazy this vision, but <clears throat> this wouldn't be a complete interview if I didn't mention Stu Porter, the guy I partnered with, because Stu, Stu was the funding behind the NEBC. If I had an idea, that was just an idea. Crazy. But um, the NEBC did do a great service, and it, it really is on Stu. I mean, he, he was completely unselfish. He's been unselfish with our program. And then building that place, <laughs> I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten over the years. Hey, I'm thinking of building a complex just like the NEBC. And I always say, good luck. I'm happy to help you any way I can. But up here in New England, land is expensive. Development costs are ridiculous. And it's not easy to do. And that's why it hasn't been done again. Right. But thank goodness for Stu Porter. And, and he's always wanted to be in the shadow. And I'm, I'm not shilling for Stu. But it, this is an opportunity to thank him for everybody in New England because most people don't know who the heck he is, but that's how it got there. Yeah, I, w- I had Dave Geeslin from Three Step on the podcast a couple of months ago, and he was the same type of sentiment that you just had. He, I was like, are, are there any plans to build another facility? And he was like, not in New England. Maybe we do it in South Carolina or something where the land isn't as expensive, but cost-wise, it just wouldn't make It would be easier to have people travel from New England down to South Carolina mm. than build another field here, which... I guess you, you won't be expecting any competition for the NEBC anytime soon. Well, the good news is the schools and the towns, as they transition or, or put money back into their municipal fields or the school fields, are, are putting turf in. Yeah. So it's happening. And, and it, it's probably a, a better way. Like, it, there's more fields this way. Yeah. I wanted to ask, I saw Roger Clemens, you had sent some photos over from some of the instructional developmental stuff with the Roughnecks, and he's been at, I guess, mentoring, maybe not mentoring, but, you know, at least leading some clinics or instructional periods with your Roughnecks. How did that, I, I know you were with the Red Sox for a long time. How did that relationship come about, and how often does he come in to help Roughnecks players? 
Oh, I mean, that's that's another podcast. Roger's just a great guy, and obviously we were there together, and I was a lot younger, so we, we became good friends and workout buds and all that kind of stuff, and our kids grew up together. But he, he's a guy that is pretty unselfish, so when he comes to town, he gives us a call, and there was an occasion a year ago where he came and he wanted to work with a kid that wasn't a roughneck and he said hey can i come out to your place and i'll do a clinic for you guys and i said sure you don't have to do the clinic to use the place yeah. and three hours later he's still talking to our guys and showing them showing them stuff and the stuff he was talking about was just absolutely so spot on ace adams was there it was just back to some of the things we we're talking about the frenzy guys you don't need this don't throw mat do you think i threw 100 percent all the time i threw 100 percent, maybe two percent of the time he said, I had, to control my, I had to control the ball. You have to learn how to feel the ball. You have to learn how to control the ball. Right. You can throw it as hard as you want. If it doesn't go where you want it, it doesn't mean anything. Right. And y you guys know I never threw a no-hitter in my life. Kids didn't know that, of course. And, and kids said, well, why is that? He said, because I was around the plate. They knew, they knew I was going to be around the plate. If I hit him, it probably had an intent to it. <laughs> so it was good stuff for the kids to hear that he played football, basketball, and baseball. He didn't get recruited out of high school. He had to go to JUCO before Texas. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, guys laughed at him when he said he wanted, guys in his high school laughed at him when he said he wanted to go to Texas. Huh. And that, yeah, he must not have been throwing 98 miles an hour at the time, I guess. He worked hard. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, that's why, that's why a kid who's 15, 16, 17, who's a junior in high school. I mean, we see it all the time, the late bloomer. And, and, and back to what's wrong, right? I think the college coaches and people are impatient, right? They, they want, they, they can't blame them. They want to win now. But that gangly guy that's not shaving yet, he may bust out at 18, 19 years old. Yeah, I th the other thing, too, is that the college coaches are offering a lot earlier now, too. These D1 coaches, freshmen, they're, they're, right now they're committing 25, 26s, class of 25 and 26s, which that's a lot of projection, I think. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. Their job has gotten more difficult because if you don't offer early and you wait, but a lot of the guys who are getting, they're like 23s right now, are getting D3, D2 offers, but a lot of the D1 programs, especially with the transfer portal. And I want to ask you about that because that's another issue. A lot of programs are about half their recruiting class now is guys that are transferring. And so there's fewer opportunities for guys that are coming out of college. So you see more postgraduate years and more reclassifying at the prep level. Do you think the transfer portal is just a temporary product of the pandemic or is that here to stay? I don't know whether it's here to stay, but I do think it's a problem. Mm -hmm. I think Again, I think NCAA rules, people can address a lot of this stuff, the early commitments, the early talking to people, the transfer por portal, but they have to have the will to change it. And, and all we're doing with a lot of this stuff is robbing kids of their youth. Mm -hmm. There's no reason for a 26 or a 25 to be committed to a Division One school, right? Enjoy your life. Go play a couple of different sports. Enjoy your high school. And somehow that's vanished. In a way, we're all part of the problem. Roughnecks travel baseball, the whole thing. New England Baseball Journal. We're all part of it because it's become, well, if you could put the genie back in the bottle, we'd be back into Legion Baseball and just kids playing and getting better and guys still got to the major leagues. But 
you know, travel baseball probably started because it's exciting to go challenge yourself if you're from Massachusetts against kids from Florida, right? And that, that's really how it probably came about, at least in our mindset it, it is. And then, and then it's just gotten to, to where it is, where everybody, whether it's tournament organizers, they take more tournaments, more, more teams in, 600 teams versus 60. Yeah, you don't know who you're playing. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think it probably initially it was like, hey, we got these great players. They're not getting seen. They're not getting their offers. Let's take them down south and watch them compete against these guys that are committed to Vanderbilt and right. SEC schools. But you asked a question about the problem of the transfer portal and, and the early commitments. And and again, look, it would be an interesting study at UMass in, in the graduate school there. They, they have a great sports management program. If someone did a thesis on early commitments and commitments and verbal commitments and how many, what percentage actually the kids stayed for four years or even went there at all, because I, I think there's a lot of... <clears throat> There, there, there are a lot, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. A kid will tweet, I'm committed to Slippery Rock or so-and-so. And sure, he's committed to it, but there's nothing really formal on the other end, right? And right. yet it's out there. Yeah, there's nothing formal even when you're at the school. If you're Correct. playing for the program, they can say, hey, we're going to pull your scholarship. You didn't perform for us this year. We don't even have a spot for you. Go on the transfer portal and see where you land. Oh, it happened to one of our kids. Yeah. It happened to one of our kids in Virginia. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one. I know you had some talking points, things that issues with baseball are things that can be improved. Is there anything we haven't gotten to yet? The affordability and cost, you, you hit on that a little bit. Baseball used to be and should be a fairly inexpensive sport, right? right. I mean, the glove is your big investment. You can always borrow a bet. The, 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 the fact that this travel baseball industry and and the and frankly the academy instructive the pitching academies and the the people that are selling the stuff is is a perversion of what the game was really invented for it was a team game if you look at some of the old team pictures whether you go to boston college or harvard you look on their walls the rosters were what 18 20 guys Mm -hmm. you don't need 35 guys to play baseball i'm sorry go be competitive and if there's not a place at bc there'll be a place at the next school mm-hmm. but the the fact that these people are paying so much money it's become a white upper middle class endeavor right. and and you don't need me to preach to you about looking at major league baseball and the dearth of african americans that are in 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 the game right now i mean are we making baseball really affordable to all people domestically mm-hmm. and can we learn something from the people from the Latin countries who don't have as much and don't pay for travel baseball, but yet compete and go right. and play. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's some serious problems and we're part of the problem and we have to figure out ways to be part of the solution. Yeah. What do you think, what do you think some solutions would be? It sounds like from an NCAA level, put some, put some, put some teeth into the rules. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Don't let them commit or get player commitments when they're 14 years old maybe slow down this transfer portal a little bit. In terms of travel, I don't know if you could cap the cost in a capitalist the United States, but what could you do, I think, to make it more inclusive and uh, more equitable for everyone? Well, I mean, when you're talking about being equitable, I mean, anytime you're in a competitive situation, there's a meritocracy based on talent, commitment, passion, all that kind of stuff. So that's why we do the one team for level. Yes. But 
I, I don't have an easy answer for you. And, and I'm not going to even pretend that I have answers. It's really a discussion. We, when I say we, we all need to make an effort to bring the costs down to participate in a program such as this for those who might otherwise not be able to afford it. And uh, we're, we're trying to do that. We have a couple, well, Stu funds some scholarships, and then we have a couple others that, that we, we try. We, we, we do as well as we can. In an ideal world, it would cost zero to play for the Roughnecks, and we're 100% funded. We'd be like a, blind, a need-blind admission standard, right? Right, like, yeah. Like, we took you, we'll fund you. If you can pay X, by all means, pay X. But that would be the ideal situation, but maybe I'm living in a dream world. But I was living in a dream world about the complex, too, so. yeah. That's true, and look where we are now. So, well, Steve, I I really appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk to us about the problems. I would have been happy to talk about your career with mm, the Red Sox, no. or but I know you don't like to promote your yourself or your program. But um, we'll we'll continue to follow the Roughnecks because I know a lot of the top players and top teammates in the area play with your program, and appreciate all you've done for the New England baseball scene over the years. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. Thanks to Steve August for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, David Yaz. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production.